Hi, this is Max Rivlin-Nadler, and you're listening to the Full Stop Podcast. As always, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for making this possible and receiving the perk of getting this episode a bit earlier than our other listeners. Full Stop relies on your support to flourish and grow. Full Stop's newest quarterly issue, focusing on translation, is out now. In it, we discuss how there's a language between the languages, where translation lives. With true fidelity, a long-sought ideal dispensed of, translators seek that rhyme of language where the meaning shines through, even if that takes them into this third realm. This other place is where Full Stop ventures in this new quarterly issue. You can subscribe to the Full Stop Quarterly through our Patreon or purchase a single issue on our website. Featuring art by Caroline Casey, there's definitely enough literary criticism kindling to keep you warm through this dark pandemic winter. This month on the podcast, we're featuring a conversation between the novelist Brooke Sterrett and Full Stop contributor Christopher Wood. Brooke Sterrett is the author of The History of America in My Lifetime, which came out last year from Spoit and Dival. Christopher Wood has contributed many times to Full Stop, most recently with an essay on Slavoj Žižek and the coronavirus pandemic. Good thing that's over with, though. Ha ha ha. Okay, well, I'll, uh, I'll let them take it from here. Well, thank you, Full Stop. This is Christopher Wood, contributor to Full Stop, and thanks for everyone who's listening, fellow contributors, readers, subscribers, donors. Today I have Brooke Sterrett in uh, conversation, you know, just about his new novel, The History of America in My Lifetime. And uh, welcome, Brooks. Thanks a lot for having some time here. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I'd just like to share some of the praise that the novel got it, it was out in may I believe. uh yeah may 3rd and not I, may 4th you know, I, <laughs> I, may I the 4th i don't like all that yeah <laughs> no <laughs> no this is this is a very serious novel with no sci-fi elements or any sort of like <laughs> paranoia or anything like that it's a straight rea- straight realism <laughs> um well to that point, let's hear what some other uh, straight realists have to say about this. This is Jack Jemps. Um, if Nicholson Baker wrote The Crying of Lot 49, it might read something like The History of America in My Lifetime. Mind-bending, suspense, suspenseful, and extremely funny. I found this novel the perfect balance of intellectual challenge and pure pleasure. And then Michael Kimball is also uh, just a real straight, straight shooter mm-hmm. in his fiction. The history of America in my lifetime slips into the neural network of your brain and declines extraction. An amazing and unforgettable novel. Um, for me, I've kind of gone back to it over the summer and, uh, you know, keep going back to it. And it's, uh, it's, it's a taut thriller and uh, it's, it's got, you know, basically just it's a thinking person's read and it makes you think, but it also makes you turn pages. And I don't know how you really achieve that because it's so darn hard and it flows seamlessly. So, um, I guess maybe the best way to describe it is, so there is some crime there's, you know, without giving too much away from it, it's, it is suspenseful. It, it starts in an airport, which is always a great place for something to happen. 
you have a character who sees some strange character on the airplane and in in the terminal and on the airplane and then it goes into you know he he goes to a movie with a friend and sees some kind of potentially similar character in the movie and and that's just like one of the first kind of like movements to kind of get the story going but it's definitely got that that like mystery edge to it and then also you have just this really kind of like stunning voice who's always who's very observant and very sensitive to his environment uh, while these strange things are happening to him right and there are these like little digressions but they're not really digressions they're like woven so seamlessly into the actual you know surrounding action and everything so you know you're going to these different locations like you know like a brothel or like a really weird kind of office building and then suddenly it kind of like devolves into a uh, a, a a quick little treatise on the uh the the state of like you know the history of snuff films or other mm-hmm. like little mini histories or etymologies of of these like strange words and vocabulary that you use so it's i i guess what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to get across the point that yes it's philosophical it's existential you know whatever those old kind of musty old words that you would describe a uh, you know fiction of the highest caliber in kind of the experimental tradition that you know from like the high 70s you know but at the same time you're you're turning pages uh, in the way of you know like a, a delillo novel or um, even you know something along the lines of a, a mass market paperback I thank you so much I mean I guess it's interesting I mean you started with the crime and I yeah, I'm very I'm interested in fictional crime and true crime. I guess I love crime. Uh, it's not doing crimes. So I would never uh, say that on record, but it's the crime element there in the detective novel in general. There's long been a like a connection between, you know, detective uh, fiction and philosophy for sure and it's i guess it lends itself i mean the narrator of this one is sleuthing and like ruminating and yeah searching for the truth and i was always um it's been many many years since i read the cry of lot 49 but it, it's always nice to have someone make that connection uh and the readability i'm like glad to hear too because i well i'm interested in what thrillers do i mean literary thrillers but if it makes you think, I think I would hope it's, or if it makes you think it's a kind of thinking without thinking, maybe a, a propulsive thread that's taking you through it's maybe it's experimental, but I, I mean, I think it's, it's quite linear. Right. I mean, experimental often means like multiple narratives going on at the same time. And for this novel, there's like a surface, right? And it's like the mind of your sleuth who narrates. Yeah. And I mean, surface and the mind of the sleuth, a lot of his, his thinking is like purely focused on surfaces and the literal. And you mentioned digressions and 
like many other things we're talking about, whether it's a thriller or realism or digressions, if you look at it for too long, it's harder to say whether it's a di- digression or not. Because if, if it's if it's digressing, what is it digressing from? Is there is there a main body and a digressive body, or I mean, it's hard to say. You're taking me back to a book that made a lot, like a huge impression on me, and that was Reality Hunger, oh, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Where, like, I mean, basically, like, it, it's all about, like, you know, I'm I've had it with these old Victorian novels way of writing stories, and you know, I like the dig- digressions more. And you're kind of like turning it back around and saying, well, you know, why do we read anyway, right? I mean, it, it, yeah, <laughs> and if looking at say taking the first novel i mean there's a lot of arguments people if the first novel is don quixote then like the first novel is an anti-novel and that's chock full of digressions and commentary on itself and tristram shandy you and i have talked about before I mean, I've read those books and love them. I don't know if it's doing something similar, but digressions are hard to like what it's the question of, uh, you know, Moretti has in the bourgeois, he's talking about pride and prejudice and saying only three things happen. The rest is filler. So like, what is filler and what is the opposite of filler? It's not, uh, I mean, I love filler, I guess it could be all filler. So you're you're mentioning Franco Moretti, right? Mm-hmm. Who's kind of champion of of distant reading, right? And kind of like look taking a data approach to studying literature. And that's one thing that he does, yeah. Well, no, it's just because like there's like a climactic scene between two characters later on and instead of like a transcript of going back and forth you have, you know, this word was mentioned 10 times and this word was mentioned three times. And so you're trying to communicate, at least that's what I got out of it. It was like, you know, this like essence in the data of the conversation that's also kind of like an emotional departure from like, you know, this critical part in the book. You know, you you caught me because I was about to like say the limitations of the distant reading and say that what I look for in Moretti is when he's doing, when he takes that data and does actual literary criticism with it, which is what I like. But yeah, I guess you totally, yeah, I not thought of that. I mean, the, not to give anything away either the data center, which is real. If there was a place that had all of our text messages and all of our emails and all of our call logs, and it was all together you would need to kind of analyze it distantly, like in bulk. You would, right? I mean, when big data came on the scene, when like, you know, market researchers were pumping in all this data in and trying to gain insights out of it and everything, you know, Mm -hmm. it was all about the data that you wouldn't have thought about. You know, it's like, what are these things that we, that are outside of, human behavior but are yet part of it that we don't know about and how can we act on that you know how can we gain these insights and uh, I I guess that's uh, one of the things I don't mind about like distant reading is the things that you wouldn't have thought about but at the Mm -hmm. same time literature is such a, a personal 
exchange or transaction. I mean, I don't necessarily think there's just so much in your book about like experiences around different kinds of art. I just I mentioned film. It's it's a book. It's a reading uh, experience that also talks about language and there's even like sculpture and there's painting there's an art gallery and an exciting thing that happens in there so you mentioned that there's this um company right so so the speaker he works for a an industrial shredding company right and then uh i think i have that right right uh yeah it's a well sans uh shred authority uh neighborhood storage he works for a shredding facility that's actually not super large. I mean, there's there's one description where he's like, you know, operating a forklift of like crates of papers and feeding it into this shot. And then and there's like different there's different um, grades of shredding. Right. Mm-hmm. There's like the kind that says that it will actually tear up even like the the individual letters in the document to make sure that you can't connect like a T with an H or something. Oh, even more. Yeah. I mean, and, and those are all real. You can, um, I know we're very digital, but so many companies are not. And even the U.S. military and all these, like there's still paper being used in many industries um, and we're moving away from it. But yeah, shredding big bit is a big business and there are like six plus levels of security and one will like totally like chemically like destroy like pulverize it you can turn a piece of paper into sixteen thousand pieces and you'll never get that back yeah it's never coming back now, yeah. now what is the advantage then of just cutting the old credit card in two do you know that because it doesn't seem like oh that on, on that same scale does that do anything not really i mean yet it's like my bank still tells me to do that oh well i I get a new one you should cut it into at least eight pieces (laughs) yeah see there are some shredders that you can feed a credit card into also and paper clips but it's funny i mean the credit card we're very careful but i'm sure many of us have left it behind and you just call you just make that one invalid and i mean our you leave it at the bar or somewhere, a restaurant. What it um it happens, and the card is not our problem really. There's a, a mobile simulacrum of it yeah. anyway, and it's all the places you stick the card that's the problem. <laughs> it's not the physical card that you left behind. Uh, it's a great point too. Yeah, um, and from the paper shredder oh, right. uh, facility, there's one other large, and this is a bigger corporation it's called vector Mm -hmm. i think and that's i think what you were alluding to before so a friend of the main sleuth a woman that he meets at a bar i don't think they really have any previous history although i just as a digression just want to point out that this is also the way the book works it's it's pretty associative even with like kind of the characters kind of like float in and out and come back and it's not because there's any sort of, you know, metafictional loops being done here. It's just, it's, I think, something that speaks to, even when it's an offline experience, in an, a real world experience, this is how we operate online, right? If I have like a Zoom call going up and then like an email or, you know, I, I send out a tweet or, or, or hear back from somebody. Or someone slides like these... slides into your DMs. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. Yeah, and it's like, aha, and here's this person. So, like, you have a friend. So the sleuth has a friend, Liam, and they go to a bar, like, after the movie, I guess. Mm -hmm. And and then I think it's at that bar through Liam that he meets Blanche. Um, Well, also to not give anything away... Uh, the characters who float in and out, as you put it, and that's, I think that's totally right in a way, or they they float in. As it unfolds, you question not only like how well does the narrator know them, but like what's their motivation? Like why did they show up, and what's their relation to each other? There's like play with naming in the in the book. Um, there's a lot of misdirection in the book. Uh, but there's also a lot of it revolves around uh, crime and probably online identities too. the way names can shift. I like I'm on edge with the sleuth as he's moving through mm-hmm. from person to person setting to setting. I, I would like you, Brooks, if 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 you mm-hmm. could to to read part of it. But just for me, this like jumped out the um, beginning of chapter four. Outside in the declining sunlight, Liam and I debated the effects of matinees on healthy sleep patterns. When we mentioned the pixelation obscuring the figure's face, calling it disturbing, I said nothing. This is the character that's in the movie and that he might have also mm-hmm. spotted on the airplane. Um, I wonder, you know, was one inspired by the other? In my state, it seemed possible that a living person could be based on a character in a film. I found myself scrutinizing the faces of every passing businessman in an overcoat. And it's that kind of like suspicion and sleuthing that, that kind of prepares the reader for, for what you described, right? Uh, you know, with these like characters that are kind of like, you don't really know their full story. You don't know how they know each other. And that just compounds even more when we find out like the Blanche works for this company called Vector, right? That like is this like mm-hmm. privacy anti, center yeah. or anti privacy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, part of that too is, uh, I mean, it, it mirrors the experience of being online. Uh, there's increasingly, it's not like, you know, stuff happens in real life and then you, it inspires you to post about it. It's sort of, they influence each other and online behavior and online, uh, information and disinformation influences real behavior for sure. I think it seems like, at least from my own experience, like I just assume that I'm being recorded. Oh yes. Um, and I mean, that's totally, uh, that's totally part of the, the novel and it's part of our experience, um, growing up. I was just going to say about the, a film character inspiring something in real life. I think it's important to note that it's a, there's a character in a novel who's saying this and the idea that, yeah, okay. If there, if there's a film, then obviously you would think it's inspired by real life. But really, um, the idea that the reverse is true, and there's there's a, a phrase that I'm not going to pronounce. Uh, it's a, a Czech uh, language phrase. Uh, that's so the phrase is a Czech film. Nobody knows anything. I don't know if you remember that that spot, but it's um, no. 
So it's, it appears like, uh, towards the end of the book and there's like, we've all heard the phrase, it's all Greek to me. So it's like, oh, right. Yeah. yeah that, yep. yeah. So, so something in another language. Um, and it was, it would be, it's like being a Czech film. If you don't speak Czech, I should <laughs> clarify. Um, not that all Czech films are confusing, um, but many are. Just the ones that make it to the art houses <laughs> in America are. <laughs> right. Right. There, there are plenty of, of uh, Marvel comic book, uh, you know, ripoffs in Czechoslovakia. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's and see. there are plenty of like slapstick comedy uh, gems <laughs> and stuff. Uh, but right. Surveillance. Not only like does the internet influence real life and film influence real life I mean we also assume our life is being recorded like from birth like especially if you're born this century you can pretty much be assured that there's some kind of digital trace of everything so like that reminds me of the part where the sleuth is going through these different rooms and looking at different files and stuff Mm -hmm. of you know different basically surveillance projects and it you know it's it's kind of like surveillance for hire in the sense that like there are these you know it could be you know criminals trying to surveil other criminals it could be you know spouses spying on on you know Mm -hmm. uh family members It, it runs the gamut but like you mentioned this this one like kind of like poetic passage about really the the uh, the the data trail, the life of like you know, one of these younger generation Z twenty year olds who has been from you know infancy on like Facebook and social media. Yeah, and the other the flip side of the shredding thing is so you have the narrator is literally taking text you know written printed documents and shredding them. I mean, I connect that to film editing. The The director figure is doing an inverse or a related thing, which is getting access to surveillance footage of all kinds and taking bits of it and combining those into to art, basically. And the ability to do that is relatively new. But uh, in the example you, example you mentioned, more and more of... Um, someone's life is or would be available if you had if you had all the access that's a great point that you bring up brooks just about like who is watching right because it's not necessarily and i and that's there's kind of like a parallel to data overall and you know capitalism Mm -hmm. too as like this global force because it seems like all of the so-called like decision makers or whatever are like you know um, within like it's like the system has taken over any sort of like individual agency in a way and that is I think there's like a correlation between that and like the amount of data and like actionable data or whatever like but if you're looking for one person then you can pull it all together and spin it and aim it at someone sure yeah, and it, people take a certain sense of comfort if there's like a huge database with millions and if not billions of people's data. You're not re- no one's like looking at you like they could, 
Uh, and be- if you're like a terrorist or a journalist, they definitely will. But or they think you are, <laughs> or they. Yeah, and I should uh, I should say you know uh, corporations and uh, the government. So yeah, there's a comfort being like yeah, there's not like a guy somewhere in a room looking at me specifically, but it is a collect. It's a accumulation of data points that all together uh, is very profitable and yeah you're part of it or we're all contributing to it whereas we really should own our own data that, that we generate it's a wild idea but i mean it's it is lucrative and it's being given away or taken or we, we sign it away let's be real yeah with licensing and privacy agreements that are just too mm. long to even be able to read in a week, right? It's just pages upon pages upon pages. Yeah, and even short ones that we're just tired and we like just click it because we want to use that app. Well, it's a free app. Yeah, it is. So, totally. It you feel- never you never have to pay anything except like your data. It feels free. Yeah. And I like convenience. I'm not like I I use everything. I'm not I'm not there yet. There was a phrase from the early 2000s that was, we're all Amish now. Oh, and yeah. in, in relation to the different technologies that we may use or may not use in principle. Where did, what happened to that idea? <laughs> <laughs> we're, all, we're all users mm. now, I guess. Yes, yeah, that reminds and, me, uh, absolutely, there was a, piece and n plus one i are actually i think or somewhere else a long time ago which said that by not having a cell phone at that time people thought you're poor or eccentric and now it's honestly not having a smartphone is the equivalent of not having a cell phone i think Oh, yeah, absolutely. Although I did like for a little while flipping, having a flip phone. Yeah, yeah. When everyone Because you're eccentric. But, but I think there's a new Samsung now that is a smartphone, but also flips. Ooh, man. That's... <laughs> you can fold it in half and stick in your pocket. And, like, the I, and my old flip phone self, <laughs> it's a temptation. Yeah. I don't know. It's like the, uh, the, the light phone. I don't know if you've seen that, which was very I mean, appealing. But also, that I think they marketed it as like, leave your real phone at home. Like, if you need to go and not be distracted, you need to travel light. Just take a like, leave your smartphone at home, but then take this thing that doesn't that only texts and something. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, eliminating distractions is the new technological innovation, right? Via apps and more paid services. Yeah. Which also, I mean, it makes me question the whole phrase technology to begin with because the premise of that is to have more capabilities and Mm. it seems like things are kind of circling around with you know the iphone being the last big technology and it's like what 13 years old or something like that 14 going on yeah the the whole um maybe we're digressing but the idea it no one's trying to like things are not being improved like they're 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 just being tweaked and repackaged and like getting you to buy more subscriptions it's we're like stu- we're like we've we've gone back in terms of technology doing stuff i i feel like you know if the usually this is just kind of like a straw man you know like that the novel might also be kind of like taking a step back or might be caught in some kind of 
limbo. Well, that's of some kind. That's an, man. I I've been thinking about this a lot, and it seems that the novel's response to a lot of these innovations there are two things it can do. One is in the face of technology and other forms of media and changing whatever. I actually don't think our attention spans have changed that much, but the novel can either become more like these technologies or it can double down on what novels do best. And I think I know which one I prefer. I mean, you were, you're also a critic. You write literary essays and I, I remember like, there was an old disc that was like something about typing about the internet on your typewriter or something, which was kind of like used as like a phrase to signify some old fart who's writing about these newfangled things. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's, there's a certain amount of distance though, that the novel, when it's positions itself in such a way that it can observe these phenomena. Yeah, though, I I do think the novel is endlessly capacious in its ability to absorb and, like, redirect things like the internet and even, like, film. It's, I mean, it's not dead yet. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of bad novels come out, a lot of, very, so many. (laughs) But the the fact that literary art is still being produced, um, yeah, it's to tie it back to film, the novel is, I mean, novels aren't, getting it's not a very the crude version of this is like oh people tweet a lot so they have short chapters that's not exactly right uh there i do think if you measured the vocabulary of novels now versus say the 1960s 70s it'd be lower but that's a different uh argument i do think literary novel people like to have immersion and like in a, a long form narrative that is stimulating in a way that isn't like making you tweak like like things are beeping and like activating you i think it's like the film it's like the film thing the one thing about theaters that and i hope they come back with a vengeance or stay the going to a theater the great thing about a film in a movie theater is that you can't leave or you can leave it doesn't stop the great thing is that it doesn't stop and if you go to the bathroom yeah it's, it keeps going it keeps going if you fall asleep whatever but all the other all the other shit you can pause it you can rewind whatever the even the book you can put it down but i think the best novels make you push through it's like a, a thomas bernhardt uh novel read it in one sitting and like laugh and like cringe at and like start drooling like the infinite jest tape or something (laughs) i mean like infinite jest where you keep going back to it you find new things i mean that's kind of like for for a good movie you see new things for books you Mm -hmm. you know so yeah like you ingest it in one sitting but you can still go back to it it sustains those you know a return to it And here's an old fart thing from a typewriter. Italo Calvino was like, uh, define a classic by something that you can read over and over again. And there's new things. Yeah. Uh, It's pretty. There are many disposable media items that we're not going to return to. Okay. So you mentioned uh, vocabulary in the novel. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. 
the so the very first word and in our preparation for this i have to disclose you weren't exactly sure where the novel began but there is a because there, there's a because <laughs> i was talking about the uh, beginning of it you have a framing device at the beginning of the novel that is kind of a conventional experimental thing right mm-hmm. um and experiential and experiential too. and it kind of jumps out and grabs you but i i really love it and would you be able to would you mind reading that that opening Oh, definitely. And the reason why I say that is because it also, the very first word is is a $10 word, you know? Ah. And I want to hear how you pronounce it because I don't know. I I don't have my Greek dictionary handy, so. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so pseudo-epigraphical material. Sex, male, name, redacted, age, 30, height, 5'11", claim six feet. And this is a digression or an interlude. I'm uh, 6'2", so this is not autofiction. There you go. Yeah. He's only 5'11", claim six feet. I'm 6'2". All right. Weight, 136 to 171 pounds. Character, obsessive. Discipline, sloppy. Associates, none. What follows is an account of events experienced by the above man. As a film subject, he was one of the best I've ever seen, despite a complete lack of dramatic ability. The sources I've used for the creation of this report are, in the main, video footage, both consensual interviews with the subject and footage generated without his knowledge. At the time of this writing, he's employed at a facility called Shred Authority Neighborhood Storage. In terms of familial relationships, he has two sisters, no contact, a mother, no contact, and a father, yearly contact. His sexual interests are best described as disappointingly vanilla with long-time urges for mild deviancy. Hobbies include cycling, occasional woodworking, and researching arcane topics on the internet and internalizing them. He lacks a formal education, yet is adept at finding information, albeit in an unsystematic way. I chose this subject not because of the events he experienced, though they are thrilling and profound, but because he stumbled across something that no one could turn away from. Though a select few of you may be familiar with my film work, I've recently retired to pursue other forms, hence the at times novelistic appearance of the following narrative. Lucian Bovacqua, auteur, founder of the Global Institute of Film and Fragmentation. Well, that really does get the ball rolling, and it signals potentially that what follows is not a novel or that it's novelistic but may also be engaged in other forms and maybe part of like a profile absolutely though i will there's a little bit of layering going on i think it's important to note that if if it weren't for this little uh note here there would just be the narrator the i first person narrator throughout 
I mean, it would be fairly straightforward, but here you have the suggestion that all of that is compiled by the director, the mysterious director who's, you know, being pursued by that first person narrator. So really it's like a, it's like a power balance or like imbalance or pendulum in a way. It's like the director is, even though he's being pursued, as you said, through most of the narrative, he's in a sense, the author or auteur well yeah and that's i mean you're right to (laughs) zero in on that word because it i mean it is the french word for like for author and it's it's either i mean there are a few possibilities and one of them i'll admit is i don't know you read the prefatory material and it kind of goes away which happens in other books too if i mean the when i uh reading lolita there's the the stuff at the beginning where you learn that he's like narrating from jail and then you, you forget, at least I did. So, and then it comes back later, but yeah, the idea, I mean, the idea remains that what you're reading is like, it's, it's under suspicion because it's highly constructed, but even without that note, I mean, it's highly constructed. Isn't that the same in the age of, reality tv and i mean that's kind of like an old phrase and an old kind of like phenomenon but now we have any kind of like viral footage of like confrontations on the street where it's like oh well there's someone who's like taking a picture of it on their phone and why aren't they going to help slash why aren't they running away yeah (laughs) for their lives or Absolutely. Uh, you you have to wonder, and I'm a s- pretty skeptical person already, but yeah, with, with a lot of that stuff, you got to wonder, not exactly is it staged, but cert- yeah, like is it staged or is it even with, gosh, I mean, like trending topics, are they like some of them? Sure. Like, yeah, they're organic stuff, like something crazy happened and a lot of people are talking about it, but a lot of that I assume is like on a, like someone's like dashboard plan, like six, 12 months in advance. And you like pay to have certain levels of trending kind of thing. Like, I don't know. Sometimes reality breaks in and you got, you trend by like brute organic force or like actual excitement. I don't know. You, you, you trend by giving out the ceremonial first pitch at a <laughs> ball game. Right. And throw it into like the, the, the fifth row or or something like or, 50 yeah. cents started it <laughs> yeah. yeah or you trend harder yeah people are certain uh, situations are uh already i don't know i have a lot of potential for that let's say and people certain people i mean it's way more memorable if you're going up to receive an award and <laughs> you like fall flat on your face right right or you no one's going to remember the other people who won that same award and just got up there said thank you and and left well that's interesting too because you already have actors and actresses like you have they're already all acting but then you have them acting out like even further and like it's people with the most attention on them in the planet i mean celebrities and politicians to a certain extent included and there's a spectrum there obviously Mm. um they're already it's like how to generate attention in like a media event that is already in the like 
dialed in. And I mean, Kanye West comes to mind. You have to see, you have to really go off script if you're in these cases to cut through the clutter, so to speak. But then it, it but then you start to question that, and that's the nature of our our reality. And that's yeah. the nature like you. Que- it's like how ex- people are becoming more and more extreme. But it's like, oh, was even that stage? Was that another layer? Was that another layer? Is the I mean, many beefs are obviously planned for, you know, it's exciting. Our drama is arguments are make good copy. And and this is kind of like the everyday experience that is kind of the fabric of the history of America in my lifetime. Your novel is, you know, we're being surveilled. Right. But there's also I think there is that kind of like actorly sense about because it's not just cameras that are especially because you're talking about like social media profiles you know like uh like you know footage that's probably taken by like family members you know Mm -hmm. that are kind of like turned into spies by this kind of like you know need to share you know and then having that footage be appropriated or taken over you know seized by you know, a corporation or a government, right? So, like, it's more like the behavior. I was thinking about this as I was reading. It's more about like the behavior of, you know, if you're if you see something suspicious or something, and you have people in a phone. Now, I I live in the city, so I have you know a, a massive you know high volume of people. There's always something going on, you know. Mm-hmm. But there's also always five phones out. You know, and so like I know that I'm on camera somewhere out there. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like thinking of a movie like this is our next movie. I mean, yeah, you so you're you're from uh, from Mass. Right. And so I don't know where you were uh, during the Boston bombings, bomber, Boston bomber, uh, Jokar Sarnayev. um, He was like on the run. And I think he either his brother he either shot his brother or ran over his brother and he they or they caught my recollection is he was at large and um i was in somerville at the time and i had friends in cambridge and he was like on the loose in cambridge and that was like many years or you know like what 10 or so five eight ten years ago and if it were now, like I, I could see it as like just go to the control room. Okay, activate. Like, all, like look, get everyone's phone, everyone's backyard, everyone's like garage camera. Um, they were he was like he was in someone's backyard, like in hiding in a boat in Cambridge or something. But imagine like running through backyards and then there's like a garage door camera sees you, like a someone's like nanny cam sees you, or what? And like you're like. You would totally... There's a lot of cameras there's, around. There's a ton of cameras. It seems like they're not activated for the right reasons. Sure. And, <laughs> no, you don't say. You know, <laughs> I mean, it seems like there's a strong resistance for, you know, against just the kind of like... It's not paranoia, first of all, because it actually exists, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The, the infrastructure is there for it to be put forth. Mm-hmm. And it seems like... It seems like there is, in fact, a very strong resistance to that. That's a conservative reaction. Well, um, it, it's good to have resistance to being recorded all the time. It seems to have been eroded and slipped under the door. I mean, 
London was ahead of the curve with all they had the most CCTVs anywhere. But you're right, the surveillance isn't really. It's like it is to catch a criminal here and there, but usually it's um to it's tracking location to see how many times you go to Target per week and things yeah. like that. Yeah, absolutely. Or to gauge for. Um, economic productivity is also you know um uh the way that you can kind of tell where you know gdp is 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 upping in certain regions Mm -hmm. and kind of matching that uh in this you know covid reality of like the ebb and flow of like shutdowns and then Mm -hmm. like you know activity ramping back up i i guess because like that's one of the major important stages of, uh, you know, <laughs> avoiding a pandemic or <laughs> an endemic is surveillance, right? Yeah, though, uh, I'm not sure. And I should read more about this. I'm not sure how effectively big data was used to. Uh... No, that's my, my <laughs> OK. Point. OK. It yeah, wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't used for. I I think it might have been Slavoj Žižek who said, you know, like they're doing this already anyway. Yeah. The, the companies are. So true. Yeah. That would, yeah, that would be a loss of revenue if you took some of their computing power from their normal stuff to see where the vaccines were uh, being used. Yeah. I know. I, I, I can't even, I can't even put words in, in their mouth, but like, it just seems like that there's like a common, you know, pushback against these kinds of techniques in theory right and that's why mm-hmm. we shouldn't do it at all but the problem is is that they are being done and so they could be done to like i i don't know yeah and this is there's a fascinating uh book i'll have to look it up and maybe link it in the comments or something but basically sure all of the um big data is sort of hand in glove with capitalism but that isn't like inevitable you could imagine what if uh, amazon were nationalized and then like owned by the post usps and like it would be like even more efficient and like uh if you could like logistics were in service of getting necessary goods or like um i don't know disaster say like getting you know, tents to a disaster zone or whatever with Amazonian efficiency, that kind of thing. You mean, so it wouldn't be for profit. It would be for like use value of citizens. People. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and essentially that's what technology means for me anyway. And that's what technology is, is sold for, right? Is mm-hmm. for what it can do for you, not necessarily the data that it can take in, even though that's, that tends to be the payoff. Right. down the road but i mean so just briefly to go back to because i did have like one or two other questions about the book specifically you know you mentioned that this is like a director have you you've also written about film too like do you do you find the authoring process similar to like like a movie process or do different mediums dictate different processes and then also the other question would be like you know isn't isn't film like a collaborative medium uh two great questions i mean so there's i have to bring up rob grier um for his 
novels and approach to novels and like the nouveau roman in general and like you know natalie sarot and claude simon and others but there was this idea for a time that you know the fictional point of view would be like a roving movie camera or like a and i i think that is um that has certainly affected contemporary fiction um a lot of it a lot of the kind of fiction i like but um they're definitely different and obviously at the most basic point like novels are text and it's like text versus image and there is there's always been i mean i'm fascinated with early film was like heavily influenced by novels like you have because what else did they have to go on but dw griffith he like basically invented the close-up or you know popularized it he got that idea idea from dickens uh which is it sounds it it blew my mind when i read that because it's if you think about it you have a character okay it's like describe a character okay they're looking at their watch now describe the watch that's a close-up and to translate that to film uh there are a million examples like that and the to answer your question the novel film relation they are have been heavily intertwined and uh andre uh bazan i'm gonna butcher the quote and his name but the he contended that uh, the novel modernist novels would not have been able to w- wouldn't exist without developments in film editing so it's and it's you can't it's like obviously that's pretty theoretical but you can see that these two the the forms influence each other there's so much suspense when you don't have see language can get interiorities right and can describe motivations and psychological states in like a Henry James novel. Although Henry James, a lot of times, and I'm using him as an example, just as like, you know, a really kind of like developed form of narrative fiction that still sticks with like one person where there's like the other people you don't know. And I think because this is something in the language when you're painting the scene and you're sticking with the sleuth, right? Like, uh, you're re- you're limited to one perspective, and that's what film is, right? Film is like the camera, and you can't necessarily see into everybody's minds. Although there are experimental techniques, so are are you talking about like gritty, like seventies realism, you know, like in film, uh, or like you know, kind of like the more surreal? I mean, that's that's what I got like from Rob Grier is like uh, is and uh, jealousy, right? Is like just like this like constant descriptions of just like the patterns in the wallpaper and like the arrangement of the trees on the property and just like kind of like going through this kind of like visual inventory of the scene. And sure. I feel like that kind of like cuts, uh, you know that that kind of like limits fiction well that's a you know that's a stylistic choice and i i I think you're right though the funny thing you you mentioned things that uh fiction can do though interiority i mean you could do that in film with the voiceover right the the, uh, but 
you're right that it, it lends itself more to surface, but it, it's funny that point of view, yeah, you think uh, there's a sense of like stream of consciousness is giving us something more direct, cause, but it's just like, that's just a, the latest, like real, the latest, most real, most quote unquote authentic thing. And you have, when you have someone like Robe Grier in the, in the 60s and so on, they're actually, ag- they're against psychological they're like yeah that's played out we don't need yeah it's all surface um and whether sure there's nothing inherently like wrong or less real about having quotation marks or like a thought bubble in a on a character but i think there's something about the maybe our moment that's more surface i don't know maybe we've had too many like psychologically rich interior dramas i don't know but they're good too i mean jane austen for like the psychology at play is phenomenal oh um, you meant but, but i yeah. thought you meant i thought you meant like uh like news coverage today and oh, political psychodramas <laughs> oh yeah that too and the yeah. president's tweets <laughs> yeah cl- we need close reading and distant reading for that there I you think. go <laughs> well at least just keep reading that's my one message uh, here <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Just keep reading. It doesn't matter what. If it's the ingredients on the milk carton, just read it really good. Oh no! See now you're sounding like a conceptual artist. Over and over. Yeah. Instead of a novelist. Yeah. Heaven forfend. <laughs> but uh, congratulations with the new novel, and uh, and again, it's the history Thanks. of America in my lifetime by Brooks Sterrett from Spiten Dival. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, man. Thanks for having time. And uh, thanks again to everybody listening on Full Stop. Thanks, Chris. Take care. And thank you for listening to the Full Stop Podcast. You can support Full Stop at patreon.com backslash fullstopmag. And always find a ton of reviews, essays, and interviews at www.full-stop.net. We'll see you next time.